You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. My guest is one of the most talented driving forces in the entertainment business today. He's been called a genius as a producer of the most successful movie musical ever made, Grease. The 24-hour job that I happen to like very much, my business life and my social life, is all mixed together. His Hollywood parties are almost as famous as his movies. Now, most people talk about nostalgia, about good old days. And I say to myself and to my friends, I mean, these are the good old days. The way they used to talk about Errol Flynn and Humphrey Bogart, we're doing it right now. This is really it. Roll it. I don't want to wake up and go, gee, I wish I'd done that. And that's unfortunately what happens to a lot of people. They wait so long to have the moment. And I'm having all the moments right now. Now that's fabulous. Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. This is your host, Mike White. On this episode, I am talking to director Jeffrey Schwartz. If Mr. Schwartz sounds familiar to you, it's probably because you've heard him on the cruising episode, the homicidal episode. He was even a guest on the I Am Divine episode, which is another one of his documentaries. This new one is called The Fabulous Alan Carr. I've seen it. I love it. Definitely check it out. You're going to hear a lot about the movie and a little too much about the village people, but... Well, actually, I don't think there is any time that you can say there's too much village people. All right, enjoy it and make it a magic night. What was your inspiration for doing a documentary about the fabulous Alan Carr? I think I'd probably speak for a lot of people of my generation when I say that Grease, that movie, that little movie Grease was a a formative, defining movie for a a lot of people. And, uh, you know, I, I was, how old was I when it came out? Nine years old when that movie came out. And, you know, I saw it multiple times. I had the album. I had the trading cards. I had the novelization, the photo novel. I even actually wrote a treatment for a sequel. And I mailed it to Paramount. So, you know, that was in my consciousness for a long time. And I knew there was a guy named Alan Carr who produced it. But I really... Over the years, sort of bits and pieces, I heard about Alan Carr, like, oh, yeah, I guess he did Can't Stop the Music, and he did the famous 1989 Oscars, and I guess he was involved with La Cage Faux. But, you know, I loved all these things that he was responsible for, but didn't know about the man until um, a biography of him came out maybe six or seven years ago called Party Animals by Robert Hoffler. And I remember reading that book the week that my uh, previous movie called Vito premiered in New York. I was sitting at a deli counter reading that book and just envisioning what a great movie this would make. It connected all the dots about Alan Carr's life. And even though he was probably someone who I don't know if he was a household name in the 70s, but people knew who he was. He was a brand. But as time marches on, you know, uh, we have a cultural amnesia. And I don't think most people know about Alan Carr, but they definitely know what he left behind. So I just felt this would be a great, colorful, fun, uh, but also poignant story to tell about uh, one of the last great showmen of the 20th century. I love the way that you have the film set up, especially starting with that Oscars thing, which so many people remember. Obviously, it wasn't that that long ago. Well, it is for some people, right? (laughs) But not for us. A while ago, yeah. It's 20, how many years is it since 89 to now? Do the math. 18 years. That's a long, that's kind of a long, there's people alive today who are just being able to join the army who were born when the Oscars aired in 89. Well, for old folkies like us, it's not that long ago. The way that you have that as your starting point and then kind of going back into his life and just, oh my God, that your use of the animation 
is spectacular. Who was your animator? I've never really done animation. I've, I've done a lot of motion graphics with our, our um, designer, Grant Nellison, and that's when you kind of take archival material and photographs and, and kind of bring them to life. But I've never really done cartoon animation. It just seemed like a natural to do vignettes of animation throughout the film to illustrate key moments in Alan Carr's life. And there's a guy named Sean Nadeau, who I'd actually worked with years ago on a, a TV special I produced for Stars about the history of the Gross Out movie, and he did a bunch of little animations uh, in there for us, and never forgot him. He's so talented, and I just thought he would be the perfect guy to kind of turn Alan into a cartoon character. So there's sort of a parallel um, universe of cartoon Alan working its way through this movie, and I thought he really captured Alan's uh, personality in in animation. And then we also had um, Drew Drogi, who a lot of people might know from his YouTube videos where he does a Chloe Sevigny a character, uh, he actually did the voice of Alan Carr. You'll, you'll hear him. If you listen carefully, you'll hear uh, Drew Drogi throughout. So I'm really happy about how those little um, animations turned out. It could be a whole movie of just Alan Carr, Adventures of Alan Carr, you know, a la Scooby-Doo in the future. Oh, God, yeah, him solving mysteries. <laughs> <laughs> I would greenlight that show, yeah. <laughs> Sykes! So when you have a person as big and a personality as big as Alan Carr, so influential, how do you even go about tackling that subject? Do you write down what you want to do initially and then kind of try to get the interviews to support that? Or what's your first step when it comes to a project like this? Well, in, in this case, uh, Robert Hoffler, who wrote the biography, had done so much detective work that I had um, a much easier time of trying to figure out who the right people were would be to tell the story, because a lot of the people that we interviewed, uh, Robert spoke to for his book. So I reached out to them. And then there's some other people that kind of came out of the woodwork that I don't think Robert even knew existed, like Tommy Williams, who was a boy toy briefly for, uh, for, for Alan in the 80s. So I, I hats off to Robert for doing a lot of this uh, sort of pioneering research, because no one had ever really thought that Alan Carr was all that important, you know, important enough to do a biography. And uh, Robert, uh, Bob Hoffler did um, a couple other uh, biographies, a great one about Rock Hudson's agent, uh, Henry Wilson. You know, and so it was it was reading the book. It was uh, digging into a lot of the archival that was that was out there uh, and also reaching out to friends of Alan's. Um, and, you know, this is the first time that I'd done a film why I didn't have the participation of either the family or the estate or or the actual person, you know, like Tab Hunter or Jack Wrangler, um, or with William Castle, I was working with his daughter. You know, Alan didn't really leave behind an estate. Uh, it, his sort of the, the last years of Alan Carr were a little bit dark, and nobody really knows what happened to all of his personal effects. So we, that was probably the biggest challenge. You know, we there's not a ton of material out there on him. There were some key. Um, archival interviews that he did. He was on Tom Snyder a bunch of times. Tom Snyder and him really got along and they really, you could tell, really liked each other and had a great chemistry. So there's some interviews of Alan on the late night talk shows. Um, there was a key interview that he did, a public access, a showbiz public access show um, that you'll see sprinkled throughout. Um, but, you know, it wasn't like I could open a, a, a box and there's all of Alan Carr's, you know, home movies or or scrapbooks or family photos. That stuff just didn't exist. Although Brett Ratner, who now lives in Alan's house, told me that, and Brett's in the film, you know, Brett said, oh, I have a lot of boxes that Alan left behind. So we were able to 
dig through a lot of Alan's stuff. It looked like it was from like the mid to late eighties. Cause there was a lot of Lacage material in there. And there were a lot of scripts and things that he was working on in the eighties and into the late eighties uh, before he passed away into the nineties even. But that was probably the biggest challenge was sort of how do you visually tell the story with not a lot of personal archival. Those clips of him on Tom Snyder are amazing. The, to see uh, Merv Griffin and Mike Donahue, just those appearances. And, oh, my God, those caftans, just remarkable. He went on TV as himself. And I, I can imagine, you know, people seeing him and being like, oh, what? Who is this? What is this on my TV here? Because he was so outrageous and so obviously gay without having to say it. You know, it's sort of a similar way to like um, the Liberace or Paul Lins of the of the world at that time where they could be flamboyant. And that was the code word for gay at the time. But they could be flamboyant and outrageous and clearly gay. But nobody ever officially said that, you know, it was the era before you sort of the era before coming out, before celebrities were coming out really on uh, mass. And, um, you know, although he was fairly open in his private life and everybody knew what the story was. Um, it's not something he ever really discussed on all those dozens and dozens of talk shows that he was on. You look at his work and you can definitely see some obsessions. It's sort of, there's an argument to be made for the producer as auteur in this case, because, you know, for example, obviously he liked, um, handsome men and good looking boys and they are all over his movies. And he was um, very fond of watching boys wrestle. So if you look carefully at his movies, there's always guys wrestling in the movies. And his sort of just approach to life, his joie de vivre is, is in, those, in those films. And Greece, he'd had a, he had a vision for Greece. And I think a lot of people love Greece but don't really know how it all came together. And there would be no Greece without Alan Carr. It was, it was a, a successful off-Broadway show and then a Broadway show. But Alan Carr took it and kind of transformed it into something a lot more, um, a lot more mainstream and palatable. And he kind of softened the edges to it and made it really more poppy and colorful and sort of had a, um, uh, a sly, almost camp aspect to it and a ridiculous new to, a ridiculousness to it that um, is certainly when you look at his body of work, you can see his fingerprints all over that. I love that whole thing that I can't remember which one of the your interview subjects says. As far as you were a Star Wars kid or you were a Grease kid, and just to have those huge cultural phenomenon happening at the same time is pretty remarkable. Yeah, it's it's true. I mean, Grease was the biggest musical of all time up until I think Mamma Mia knocked that off its its perch. But you know, I think it's it's it was just another um, is another time. I mean, there was just so much less media out there, and when something like Grease came along, became a phenomenon. It was. It was everywhere. You couldn't turn on the radio. And Randall Kleiser, the director, told us, you know, he would be driving around and he'd turn on the, his radio, driving down Sunset Boulevard or something, and there'd be one of the songs from Greece. Then he'd turn the channel, there'd be another song from Greece. He'd turn the channel, there'd be another song from Greece. You know, that summer, it was just, it was just everywhere. And a lot of the hype uh, and success of the movie is really due to Alan, who put the movie out there and um, made it, a, as someone says in the movie, he turned it into a worldwide party. For me, the three biggest movies of his that I return to often are Grease, Grease 2, and Can't Stop the Music. Now, Grease was a huge success. Can't Stop the Music and Grease 2, not so much. I'm curious, how easy or difficult was it to get people to talk about their experiences on the three films, having had such different uh, responses to those from the public? Well, Grease was 
the biggest musical of all time and it made Alan, you know, a, a, a huge success and financially and also his status in the town completely changed. And then he he decided to cash in his chips with his next project, which was Can't Stop the Music, which was a multi-million dollar, one of the most expensive movies ever made at that point in time. Um, and then it turned out to be one of the biggest bombs uh, of all time. But I, I love that movie. I can watch it over and over again. And I think um, probably the, one of the main reasons I wanted to make this movie is just to make the Can't Stop the Music sequence, talk about the making of that movie. Talk about somebody channeling all of his obsessions. I mean, this was something that he he initiated it. He kind of came up with the story or what there is of it, uh, along with uh, uh, originally Bruce Valanche before he he had to, he left in exasperation. And um, Bronte Woodard, who also wrote uh, wrote Grease. So he sort of he had all these elements that he wanted to put into the movie and he put it into the movie. Unfortunately, the disco phenomenon was riding high when they were shooting the movie and the village people were really popular. But by the time the movie came out, there was a backlash against disco and people were literally uh, uh, burning the records in uh, baseball uh, stadiums. Uh, and there was the, the disco sucks backlash happened and people just did not want to see can't stop the music. The only place it was a success was in Australia where, uh, disco hadn't been around long enough to, uh, for a backlash to kick in. So that was, that's actually the one place that it was actually a success. And Alan never let anybody forget that. I was really happy to see Valerie Perrine show up. Valerie, she's going through some troubles right now with her health and you never know, when you reach out to people, if they're going to get your, get your message. And she, you know, I couldn't get to her through her management for whatever reason. I just couldn't get to her. So I wrote to her on Facebook. She has a, a good friend who's named Stacy Souther, who is really her caretaker these days and helping her with, with just through her life. Cause she's not able to, she's not immobile the way she used to be. And, and Stacy asked her directly and she immediately said yes. You know, so sometimes um, celebrities have sort of layers of protection around them and you never really know if they're getting your, your message. But in this case, it got directly to her and she was so game to talk about Alan because even though she kind of credits Can't Stop the Music for with ruining her career, <laughs> she still loves Alan Carr. And I have a message on my voicemail that I will treasure forever from her. I sent her a copy of the movie recently. And she loved it, and she thought that the movie really turned Alan into a hero, which was really special to hear. And I'm just really happy that she's in the movie because uh, she's she's just a beautiful person. Did you try to get Caitlin? We we went for Caitlin. We tried to um, to talk to Clay, Caitlin, and we we didn't. We're not able to do that. And again, you never really know. You never know why, and you never even know if your request is actually getting to the person you're trying to get it to. So I can, you know, people ask all the time, like, did you try to get such and such a person or why isn't, you know, Olivia in the movie or people like, or Anne Margaret. And believe me, we, we try. And a lot of it is just logistics. People, these are people who are, are, you know, traveling the world and touring. And it's just really hard to pin some of these people down. And some of them just don't want to, are just very private and personal. Like Anne Margaret is very, very private, very rarely gives interviews. So I wasn't surprised when she actually is somebody who we weren't able to get only because I, I do know that she she keeps her private life to herself. So And so we'll never really know what the story is there um, with Anne-Margaret, but hopefully we, we're able to pay tribute to her in the movie. I mean, Anne-Margaret, it's a big part of the story because she's um, a star that Alan uh, kind of helped reinvigorate her career when things were on the, the downside uh, career-wise for her. So he, 
he was a star maker. He helped to create stars and he also helped to um, give uh, stars who were having trouble with their careers um, a jolt of energy. And he did that with Anne Margaret. Uh, and she ended up uh, getting an Oscar nomination uh, for Carnal Knowledge um, after he helped to reinvigorate her and try to get the town to take her seriously as an actress. So they, she was always in his life up until the very end. I'm sorry to keep harping on Can't Stop the Music, but it is such an amazing film. I was so glad, too. I mean, I've read Gutenberg's autobiography, and he did not seem shy about talking about the movie. And just to hear his stories of being the last man standing on the publicity tour was just amazing. Yeah, that was so great to interview Steve Gutenberg, who we all know. And this was his um, – it wasn't his first movie, but it was his first lead in a movie – and Alan Carr is directly responsible for that. And he is so, you know, in talking to Steve Gutenberg, he's so grateful for this movie. I mean, he knows what it is. He knows it's Can't Stop the Music. And he knows that, you know, it wasn't exactly a success. But for him, it was an incredible opportunity. I mean, he's playing the lead role in a, a musical from the guy who just had produced Grease and made John Travolta or helped to make John Travolta an even bigger star than he already was from Saturday Night Fever. So, you know, Steve has a great attitude toward all of this, and he was pretty hilarious, and I'm really happy that he's in the movie, too. And, of course, I was very glad to see Randy Jones. Some of his behind-the-scenes stories were just remarkable. Oh, my God. Randy Jones is the cowboy from The Village People. And uh, he was one of the original uh, members of the village people. So he was there every minute of the making of Can't Stop the Music and had some hilarious stories to tell about Alan. You know, people he actually was um, he was smart. He got out of the village people uh, right when they peaked. And so he wasn't around for the um, I don't think he was around for the the, the village people's new wave um, incarnation. Did you know that they had a, they changed their all their their entire look and they did a new wave album? Did you know that? Well, I, I hope Can't Stop the Music is becomes a more of a, a bigger a cult film than it already is. I mean, I, I love Xanadu, but I think people need to see Can't Stop the Music as well, the other movie of that uh, of that year that um, that is beloved for, uh, for for a lot of the wrong reasons. <laughs> but um, I've, I could watch that movie over and over and over. Can't Stop the Music. It's pretty insane. If you haven't seen it, I encourage everyone to check it out. You talked to uh, Randall Kleiser, and he kind of shares his memories of maybe kind of being pushed out of the limelight a little bit when it came to Greece. Do you think that Alan went with Nancy Walker because he knew that she didn't necessarily have the, have the experience of directing and was able to maybe control a little bit easier when it came to can't stop the music. I totally think that, I mean, he hired, um, well, I think he also thought he could control Randall Kleiser, who he was the one who decided to hire to, to direct Greece because Randall had done some TV before, but he hadn't done a, a full feature, uh, theatrical feature and um he alan was he he had no problem with his ego and he wanted as as randall says in the movie alan wanted everyone to think that he was responsible for everything that you know he you know even though he didn't direct the movie it's his vision up there on the screen so yes when he um was casting about for directors for can't stop the music he did go to nancy walker who'd never directed before uh, but she was a musical comedy person. She'd been in lots of musicals uh, of the, from the era that Alan loved, you know, the, the 40s and the 50s. So it guess, I guess it made sense on paper. Um, but uh, from all accounts, she wasn't um, uh, necessarily equipped to direct the movie. And the cinematographer, Bill Butler, who also shot um, Grease and also Jaws and uh, One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest, he was actually very close with Alan Carr. 
and is in our movie. Um, I think that he he was uh, gave Nancy Walker a, a lot of guidance on the set. And I don't think Nancy Walker was too fond of the experience making that movie. Um, And there's some great stories in our documentary about that, which I will not uh, give away at this moment. So which was better, Grease 2 or your treatment for Grease 2? You know, I wish I still had that. I don't remember even what it was. I just remembered, like, I remember drawing a logo for Grease 2. And I remember that it had something to do with, like, they were just all graduated and they were bored and missed each other. And they decided to have some kind of big reunion. And that's about all I can remember. I wish I could remember more. I had written a bunch of treatments uh, at the time. I did one about um, Darth Vader meets the Smurfs. And that was one that never really went anywhere either. But maybe it's sitting in the Paramount vault somewhere, a treatment from Grease 2 from a, uh, from a 10-year-old. It probably wouldn't be the only one. I love how down-to-earth Maxwell Caulfield is. Okay, Maxwell Caulfield, who starred in Grease 2, uh, he was also Alan's pick. Alan went to see him at a off-Broadway play, which was all the rage at the moment in New York, because Maxwell was walking around shirtless in these tight leather pants. And he was on the cover of After Dark magazine, and you know Greg Gorman was, took photos of him, and you know he was, he was beautiful. He was like in his mint condition. And Alan um, put him in the movie, but they didn't really – have much of a script and there wasn't a hell of a lot for Maxwell to do. So he actually talks about that now. I mean, he kind of marvels at the fact that this was his first big, you know, lead in a movie and he got to sing, but they made him wear that helmet for half the movie. Do you remember the movie where he's like this mysterious motorcycle guy who um, uh, Michelle Pfeiffer has this crush on because she doesn't know who he is under the helmet and Maxwell, I mean, why would you cast Maxwell Caulfield in this movie and then have him wear that helmet? And he calls him a, a bobblehead uh, in the movie. So, but we, we we talked to Maxwell and he was delightful. Um, also, similar to Steve Gutenberg, he he's still really grateful to Alan for giving him this opportunity, and also bummed that Grease Two wasn't the success that everyone had hoped it would be. But that movie too has developed a cult following and i've been to um outdoor sing-along screenings here in la of greece too that you know where every seat is filled you know so you never know what is going to uh what's going to become a a success many decades after its making one of the more consistent voices of the documentary is bruce valanche how did he and alan carr meet he met Bruce Valanche met Alan Carr, I believe, in the late 60s uh, because he he was working with Anne Margaret and her husband, Roger Smith. And I think they met in Chicago and they all just started. They all just got along. And Bruce was sort of always around. And Bruce was writing uh, for um, special material for Bette Midler, Midler. And he started writing TV specials. He's actually responsible for the Star Wars holiday special. So we have to thank him for that. Uh, and he and Alan worked on different treatments and things over the years. But when Alan was going to do can't stop the music, he called Bruce and wanted to have him write the treatment. But because Alan was having trouble casting the lead, he kept having to rewrite for all these different actresses. And then eventually in exasperation, he had to leave the project, but there's probably still some remnants of Bruce Valanche's writing and can't stop the music. And then later when uh, Alan took over the Academy Awards in 89, he wanted to bring in a whole new voice, a whole new sensibility to the Academy Awards. So he brought in Bruce Valanche uh, as one of the writers. And uh, Bruce ended up writing for the Oscars for many years after that. And so that's one of Alan's contributions to the Oscars um, that you know everyone talks about the 
uh, infamous opening number, but he made some contributions, contributions and some changes that the Academy kept after his his um, 89 Oscars. Like um, when they present the Oscar, they used to say, and the, uh, and the winner is. But Alan wanted to change to have them say, and the Oscar goes to, because he felt everybody's a winner at the, at the Oscars. And that's something that he was hoping that the Academy would keep. And in fact, they did. You still have that. And most award shows have copied that. I love the way that you are able to present just how much he loved the glitter and the glitz and just the, the idea of stars. And it just um, it really comes through. Movies were so – it's just hard to put yourself back at that in that time because movies just don't have the same kind of cultural – cachet that they used to i mean the movie stars were you know 100 feet tall and beautiful and we didn't really know too much about their private lives and they were glamorous and untouchable and you know you didn't see them in the national Enquirer. you know they were they were our gods and goddesses and alan grew up at a time where these movies were in movie palaces and they were bigger than life and alan was of that generation who came of age with this classic Hollywood musicals and movie stars. So he never, that was imprinted on him and he fell in love with glamour and enter, you know, entertainment. And he, instead of wanting to grow up to be a actor or a director or, you know, say to work in Hollywood, he actually grew up wanting to be a producer. There's not a lot of little boys who grew up wanting to be producers, but he's wanted. And he was a little gay boy who, in love with the glamour of movies and it was an escape it was an escape from your world where you could go and and um and be immersed in this uh, incredible experience that and you never knew if you'd see get to see the movie again if people the movies would just sort of come and go and so you might just get to see gentlemen prefer blondes that one time and you'd have to wait years and years to see it again so he never forgot that and you can see that that was a sort of philosophy of entertainment that he said you know glamour is entertainment and so he lived his private life that way and he and and his public life that way and the projects that he got involved with were heavy on the glamour i know you've been doing this uh, either dvd extras or feature length documentaries for so many years you're not totally jaded, though, so I, I do want to ask this question. Who were you the most excited to interview for the film? I got to say it was pretty great meeting Lorna Luft, who is um, the daughter of Judy Garland. So for obvious reasons, meeting uh, meeting her was very special to me. But I was the most touched by interview interviewing um, Alan's uh, Alan's friends. And there's a one particular woman who grew up with Alan, who was sort of the heart of the film and you see her throughout and, and she, I didn't know what I would, I would get from her, but I think all these documentaries have to have a heart. I think without her, it would be a very different movie. Her name's Joanne Simbalo. And without her, it'd be a very different movie because she knew him before he was Alan Carr in quotes. She knew him when he was, you know, a little fat half Jewish kid in, in the suburbs of Chicago and grew up with him. And they were friends throughout his life. And, you know, he knew her family. And so she had a perspective that no, none of the celebrities could have. Um, and so she's really special, but yeah, meeting, uh, getting to interview Lorna, um, was, was pretty great. And, um, I just, um, I wish I could have talked to Alan, you know, that's my one regret. And he would be, he'd be 80 years old, uh, in a couple of weeks that his birthday is coming up. And this, so this is interesting that this documentary kind of coincides with, uh, with Alan's 80th, 80th birthday. It's interesting to think about what he'd be up to now. 
So when we're recording this interview, it is May's almost over, let's say. Where has the film shown so far, and what's been the reaction from the audiences? The film has shown nowhere so far because we are premiering tomorrow night at the Seattle International Film Festival. Holy shit. So, yeah, tomorrow. So you're getting us right before the movie's been unveiled. I mean, a few folks have seen it, like yourself. Some critics have seen it, but it hasn't screened for an audience. So I'm flying into Seattle tomorrow morning, and we're having our world premiere. Our uh, producer, uh, John Bacardo, will be there, and we will be experiencing this movie for the first time uh, on the big screen. And I'm very, very excited because that is um, – I've, I've made some other movies before, and, and that this is always the best part. It's always uh, such a thrill to finally hear the reactions and feel the movie – hopefully working with an audience i'm just so curious what the reception is going to be because i really don't know i had my guinea pig aka my wife sitting next to me and she was in rapt attention throughout the entire thing oh good oh i like that yes. did she know anything about alan carr before seeing the movie i don't think she knew anything about him i mean obviously she's seen the movies i've watched can't stop the music i don't know dozens of times but luckily she likes that movie as well i don't know if she remembered the 89 oscars but, yeah, she was right there uh, watching the movie with me and enjoying it as much as I was. So I was very happy about that. I'm glad to hear that. There'll be some new converts to uh, the world of Alan Carr. It's almost a cameo by Peter Bogdanovich. How did that happen? Well, I don't want to give it away, but there's a moment in the movie where there's a, a, a very – uh, the, let's say the voice of the establishment shows up in the movie. And we needed a voice that would represent – Hollywood, the old guard of Hollywood at a, at a pivotal moment in the movie. And I was just trying to think of a, what, who's a voice, a recognizable voice that is connected to Hollywood that could do this and immediately thought of Peter Bogdanovich because we, we just – I love his voice and I love his movies and love everything about him. And uh, I just uh, called up his agent and said, this is what we want to do. Could he come in for an hour? When you asked about, you know, is there anyone uh, I was starstruck to meet, that was, that was definitely one of them because that guy, aside from loving his movies – as we all do, um, just his scholarship and the books he's written and the these really uh, valuable interviews that he did with all these great directors toward the ends of their lives. You know, he he sought all of them out. So we have, as a historian, I have so much respect for him. And um, yeah, he came in um, and he uh, and he did it in a couple takes, and that was it. And uh, and he's he's in the movie. As you were doing your research, you know, and I know that there was a fantastic book about Mr. Carr out there, but as you're researching and as you're interviewing and finding things out, what was the most surprising thing for you? I thought that this would be an opportunity to look at his life as a, a social history. I, I wanted to put him in the context of the different times that he lived. And so the idea – so it's sort of exploring the, the gay experience in Hollywood um, and what the limits of that was. Like – I didn't I guess I never really thought about the fact that he wasn't really officially out. So that was interesting to discover that no matter how flamboyant and outrageous he could be, it was always coded. And um so, you know, the idea was to to explore that and how he used his humor and outrageousness to sort of make his way in a very conservative town, the conservative industry, and the way that he was able to further the acceptance of gay identity just by being who he was and being himself. And how his sensibility, that gay sensibility, however you want to define it, it, it made its way into the product. And so he helped make things more acceptable without – he certainly wasn't an activist, but in a way he was like an ac accidental activ activist. I guess it wasn't until he did uh, Le Cage Faux 
that was the first time that he did a, a work that actually the gay themes were up front and up up and out and center. And it was a Broadway musical that had the first, uh, it was a love story between two men. That was the first time that had ever really been done in a Broadway musical. So, and that became a big success and, you know, definitely moved things along in the culture. But I have a lot of respect for him. And, you know, he, he did some, uh, he had some big successes and some huge failures, but he kept on going. He kept persevering. He never stopped. I think that's really inspiring uh, for everybody, regardless of what you're doing with your life, to see somebody who had a dream and he went about and made that dream come true. I think that's a great I think that's a great thing. Speaking of cameos, I was very glad to see uh, Vito Russo sneak in there, too. Oh, yes, he's in there. Yes, there's a lot of little cameos in there. Uh, I don't, I don't give it away, but yes, it's uh, these are these are just it's just fun for me just to pepper the movie with all kinds of fun archival stuff for people who are looking fast. You might see Carol Channing or or uh, Shelley Winters or Vito Russo or uh, any number of rock cuts and any number of people will just sort of fly by. So you gotta you gotta keep an eye out for all these little little cameos. You talked about how Grease 2 and Can't Stop the Music have found new life and new appreciation in years after they were initial disappointments, let's say. Another film that kind of falls along those lines, and one that I actually just uh, was discussing last week when we did an episode about Mommy Dearest, is Showgirls. Tell me about your Showgirls project. Well, back in the DVD extra days, I was very lucky to be able to work with Paul Verhoeven. And I produced uh, a, a number of titles uh, for him and the studios that owned his films. So I did documentaries about Total Recall and Robocop and Starship Troopers and Basic Instinct and did some commentaries with him for his Dutch films. But the one that got away was Showgirls. And I was producing DVD extras probably in the early 2000s. And I don't think the Showgirls cult had grown to the extent that it is now. And I was always pitching Showgirls. I always wanted to do Showgirls special edition and do a documentary on Showgirls. But it never came together for whatever reason. So I've always had that in the back of my mind. I, I need to do this movie. Nothing was sort of happening with that until Elizabeth Berkeley made the appearance at the graveyard here in Hollywood. There was a special Cinespia screening of Showgirls where she, for the first time, appeared in person and gave this really incredible, heartfelt speech to the audience who were, were just losing their shit when she showed up. Because if you can imagine, you know, I don't know how, 3,000 people, uh, and none of them knew she was going to show up. And so that was the moment where I thought, okay, it's it's time because she's – she's sort of come full circle and it's time to do this. So I've started, I reached out to Paul Verhoeven and I pitched him the idea of doing this and he's, he's on board. We've actually filmed an interview with Paul already. And now the movie is in sort of, uh, I don't want to talk too much about it because it's in the very early stages and we're looking for financing right now, but I know that we're going to get this thing done and it's called goddess, the Showgirls chronicles. And I'm hoping that that'll be the next, that'll be the next movie. Well, what else is on your dance card? Yeah, I usually develop lots of movies at the same time because they all take five or six years to make. So even though I've been lucky enough to have a movie come out every couple of years recently, they've they're all been in, they're all kind of overlapping. So I'm working on Showgirls. Um, I'm working on a doc uh, called uh, Cruising 1979, which is about the protests in New York City over William Friedkin's movie called Cruising, which was a a, a murder mystery set in the gay leather world where Al Pacino goes undercover. You did an episode on it uh, a couple of years back, which I was uh, honored to appear on with you. And the uh, documentary will really focus on the gay community's reaction to the movie being made in their own backyard, 
when they had perceived that it was defamatory. And this was right in the in the wake of the assassination of Harvey Milk and the Anita Bryant, uh, anti-gay Anita Bryant campaign. So gays were pissed. And uh, this was a, a kind of a flashpoint moment in film history. So uh, I've been filming interviews with uh, people who were out in the streets uh, protesting cruising. And uh, that'll be that's that's in the works, too. You're premiering tomorrow night. Do you have many more dates lined up for The Fabulous Alan Carr? We are screening at QDoc, which is the only lesbian and gay documentary film festival in the country. That's in Portland. We're screening uh, on Sunday, so I'll be there for that. And uh, we have a website set up, and it's www.alancarmovie.com. And we are listing all our upcoming screenings there. I don't know what else is official at this point because I'm really just uh, – Toronto, I think, is official. Toronto Lesbian Film Festival. That's coming up. And there might be a couple others, but uh, some of them are still on the QT. So, But it, it will, we, we definitely have learned a thing or two about, uh, about uh, Ballyhoo from Alan Carr. So we will be shouting from the rooftops about uh, upcoming screenings. Well, between him and uh, William Castle, I guess you probably know quite a lot about Ballyhoo. Uh, yeah, if, if there are people who saw the William Castle documentary that I made called Spine Tingler, this is sort of a, in a way, it's a little bit of a remake of Spine Tingler. It's very similar. It hits a lot of the same beats. And I keep t- telling people that I, I, I find myself making the same movie over and over again. This is no exception. But uh, yeah, Alan Carr and William Castle had a lot in common. And I wonder if they ever crossed paths. I don't know if they ever did. But um, so this uh, Alan Carr movie is sort of a, a gay version of Spine Tingler. And uh, it's I hopefully I think I think people enjoy it. We're in a very fraught time right now in our country and uh, we're all filled with stress and anxiety and uh, uncertainty. And this was in when, when Alan Carr made Grease, we were in a I don't want to say we were in a similar place, but um, the shit was hitting the fan at that time as well, uh, socially and politically. And he made Grease to help people forget their troubles, like Judy Garland saying. And I hope this movie does a little bit of that for 90 minutes. We don't have to think about the current occupant of the White House or <laughs> anything else. And just enjoy um, a romp through uh, a Hollywood of yore that will never be again. Now, I have to ask when the DVD comes out. Is there going to be like a five-hour extra on Cloak & Dagger? <laughs> that's what. That's a weird one. Cloak & Dagger was that movie with Henry Thomas. That came out, and I don't know what the story is with that. I, I think he might have had a deal. He might have had some kind of deal with Universal, and his name's on there. But I don't. I don't. I never talked to anybody who knew anything about that movie. I don't think he was that involved with it. I really don't know. There were a lot of projects that he he was involved with that he wanted to make that never came to fruition. Um, that one I can't tell you anything about. I know I saw it when it came out. But uh, and I watched it again in prepping for this movie. But uh, it didn't make the it didn't make the cut. Yeah, I I totally understand. Yeah, and that you don't remember it that well, I can uh, empathize with that too. I just remember um, Dabney Coleman in a beret. Yes, I was going to say I, all I remember is Dabney Coleman. Yeah, that's that's uh, that one. I don't think we'll have any uh, DVD extras on that one, but I I love DVD extras, and I've got a couple hours of interview outtakes all ready to go. If there's even DVDs by the time this thing gets released on DVD. The last movie, I didn't even know if there'd be a DVD, and there there ended up being a DVD. Uh, this one, there'll, there'll probably be a DVD. I think there's still a lot of people out there who like the format. I certainly do, and um, I'm hope hopefully we will have a Blu-ray and a DVD. 
I think I might own all of your feature films on DVD, except for the new one, of course. That will be coming. With every DVD, you'll get a free scoop of uh, Can't Stop the Nuts ice cream from Bass. He did, uh, Alan Carr was a, a master, an early promoter of uh, product tie-ins. There's a couple in Greece. And for Can't Stop the Music, he did a deal with Baskin Robbins to create a tie-in ice cream. And it was called Can't Stop the Nuts. And it really exists. It existed. Yeah, I had no idea. Otherwise, I would have gone out and gotten gotten a Sunday. It's time to, uh, maybe they'll want to do a revival of that once comes out kind of doubt it we tried to find people at baskin robbins we tried to find people who might have still you know retired people who worked there and who was the person that said yes to that i wanted to find that person but we never had any luck baskin robbins no clue what we were talking about jeffrey thank you so much for your time it's always a pleasure to talk to you i always love talking to you and you actually have a credit on the movie because early on you helped me find a whole bunch of newspaper articles about alan probably some of which ended up in the film and uh, because you are a very thorough researcher, and I want to thank you for that. If anyone's listening and uh, needs some help with their documentary, hire Mike White. Thank you very much. Good luck with the fabulous Alan Carr, and I'm already hoping to see Goddess the Showgirls Chronicles ASAP. You and me both. You might be getting a Kickstarter request uh, <laughs> one of these days. You so let me know. I'll, I'll do whatever be, it takes. Be careful what you wish for. <laughs> <laughs>
this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media, let's make some noise.